College costs are eye-popping, student debts are a national crisis, and colleges are just hoarding cash in their endowments. They're all just a cartel of greedy people catering to the very rich who wrap themselves in an altruistic cloak of fully funding the very poor to attend their colleges and then they, you know, leave the middle class in the wind, right? Well, this is my 10th episode, double digits, big deal, so I had to make this one be the interview I did with my friend, my boss, and member of this cabal of enrollment managers charging an arm, a leg, another leg, several fingers, probably an ear or two, and definitely your scalp for a college education. His name is Jonathan Burdick. He is the Vice Provost and Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at the University of Rochester. Welcome to The Crush. Crush. I'm Gavin Sweeney, a college admissions counselor who became a college admissions counselor because my guest today not only admitted me to college, but also offered me my first uh, and second jobs uh, in admission when I came out of college. And then when I left, uh, again, the uh, less uh, satisfying work I was doing before I came back. So to my legions of uh, all you just 20 to 40 listeners who keep coming back for this, I say there simply would be no The Crush without this guy. So thanks, John, and to all of you, you're welcome. Uh, reminder now to subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. Check out more at crushpodcast.com. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod. So there really wouldn't have been a way for me to, to tackle this issue and specifically to do it with John in anything less than, than two hours at least. So sorry, kind of, but there's a lot of good stuff in here I think that you guys would be interested in. Here are some questions that uh, I wanted some answers to that we discussed in the interview. Is college worth it? How does a college set its uh, the price of its tuition? Uh, you know, is this going to go on forever? Is it criminal to charge $65,000 a year? Where do you get off? Uh, you know, why do the places with the biggest endowments also tend to charge the highest in tuition? How do scholarships work? When the school's financial aid office says it meets full need, do they really actually do that? And is it fair to say, why aren't college cost increases pegged to inflation? Stuff like that. So before we dive in, a special thanks to all the people who've helped me get this thing off the ground and supported its development. A couple of name checks here. Dave Lawson, J.B. Rogers, Kim Bliss, Nick Vranas, and my wife Miriam, of course, for occasionally allowing me to shirk my parenting duties in order to get this thing out there. Special thanks to Mark Rose at Fuse Audio for some critical tech support. Please check out his podcast called Fusebox. It's a quirky comedy with conversation, lots of fun sound design, excellent production, Fusebox. The show for everybody, but not everybody will like it, says Mark. And thanks, Mark. On now to John Burdick, my interview with him. I spoke with him at his home in one of America's most underrated cities, Rochester, New York. podcast because I you know I mean in one way or another I mean I just I'm not here without having met you as I recall in a courtyard, courtyard hotel Marriott in Hillsboro uh, or something the court, I, Marriott, and I think it was probably this at least the second maybe the third year in a row that I've been in that same place conducting interviews with something between 10 and 20 high school students from all over the Portland area and this skinny kid Oof. with a mop of red hair it was a and long time ago what almost looked like feral squirrel eyes um, <laughs> And translucent freckled skin popped in wow. and started yakking for a good 45 minutes about being sort of a student radical leader, student body president who'd led a march and a walkout protesting something or other in his high school. And then I found out, I think, that he had a, one of his parents was actually a teacher there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, I was, I was suitably impressed. I'm, I was told many years later by his mother that he came out into the car and did a pump fist in the air saying he'd nailed that one. So I guess it went well for him too. <laughs> yeah. Nailed it. I can't, I guess it was, so got him admitted, uh, which, which really, that's which, not, which, which took a little, took a little, little stretching of the, Hey, I really want this one kind of stuff. Cause not cause the grades were fine. It I had at least no, scores. I had a D on my transcript at least <laughs> oh, probably. freshman year. And yeah. Yeah. But back in those days, USC wasn't so 
radically selective that that was a game changer and a killer from the beginning. And then somewhere along the way, got you the financial aid. And then you said, I'm taking off for a year mm-hmm. to do a, a, a gap year. Yep. Um, and I thought that was interesting, especially that the specific plans that you had to what was still then the unique idea of being away in foreign countries, but managing to correspond with people back home over mass email. I said, well, put me on your list, send me emails. And you did from, from places like the Central American coast under Hurricane Mitch and India, Bollywood trailing industry stuff in Mumbai and sheep droving or whatever you were doing, playing trad music in Ireland. And, And I thought it was all great. And, uh, and it, so we were getting you readmitted. I mean, that was on the like. I have to say, I say also that that was like on the cutting edge of 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 web based email even being available. I think so. Yeah, that was yeah late late nineties. So it was really was, spotty. Like some people were getting emails from me like ten times because I kept pressing send. Cause I had no idea if it was actually going uh, through. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Hot I, think, mail. I think the stuff we were doing that then was sort of new, but now it's commonplace. Um, and then somewhere along the line, your mom was also corresponding to me. It happened to be the, the <laughs> winter in Portland where it rained every day for 180 days mm-hmm. and your California mother was going insane. Um, but also uh, trying to help make sure your financial aid got shored up. And I distinctly remember, um, I remember that I had to go back and fight for you all over again to get admitted. And then I had to go to the then director of financial aid and say, please, we want this one to have a package because your mom was like, the package is not going to work. And I was like, eh. and that happens a lot, actually. And God bless her. She never told me that. <laughs> well, it was never under any assumption that this was, that this was ever not going to work. It was, in, it was in that range that is pretty common where there's choices to be made about whether we count something or not. And for some students who are sky high scores or in some other way desirable or interesting, you caught it, count it automatically. And then for the vast run of students who are just they're you know they got admitted you don't and then you can fill that space on appeal and this is a case where the appeal was me wanting very much for this student to have the chance to enroll so and it all worked out yeah yeah i'm almost done almost done with, with usc loans, <laughs> oh paying yeah. back your loans yeah hey listen the package you got was significantly no, better than I'm what it would have been complaining at all i mean and that's a big part of, you know, the the nature of the questions that I have about this too is that it's like you know this is not at least undergrad graduate school is a different piece, but um, my my undergraduate loans ended up being very manageable, very easy to to deal with, um, and I mean for all intents and purposes less than a monthly phone bill uh, in probably most cases over the life of my repayment, mm. and so knowing obviously in my own sort of unique personal case where having gone there brought me to this point, you know, that couldn't have possibly made a better investment. And for so many different ways and reasons, uh, you know, I, I don't think I could have put my money in a better thing, but on the, on the other hand, and, and this, is, I think a big piece of why, of what drives a lot of the panic that families feel is that they can't know whether this is going to be good or not. Uh, I mean, well, and that's, that's a big part of, that's a big part of, of, of what drives, or do you think that that's a big part of what drives the, the, the instinct to want to select someplace with, with quote unquote prestige is because you've got a better chance of getting a good return on your money. I think with, with every, with every situation when you're spending a lot of money and especially when you're borrowing to do it, you're playing the odds and the odds on a college education at really almost any price that's currently being charged are pretty good. I mean, right now we're cruising towards the price of a four-year, the price tag at a four-year institution like Rochester or at USC or a whole bunch of other places that are very good is cruising somewhere between $250,000 dollars over four years. That sounds like a ridiculous small fortune and there must be any million other things you could put that money into that would be a better payoff, but then you rock back and actually think about it. And no, obviously you're not going to put that into nice cars or other items that you buy. If you'd put that money into the stock market, you would not have anything like the return that people have on their college degree. If you put it into a house, you would have done pretty well right up until about 2006, and then you wouldn't have done so well at all. So there is no better investment really 
at any price. And sometimes you have to frame it for people that way because they're thinking that somehow college, that their standard is pretty close to free for some reason. You're playing the odds in general and the odds in general are in your favor. And But even more so at a place where they've got a strong record of students graduating and you can also look at the records of their likelihood of paying back the loans, which in our case is fewer than 1% of our students ever default. Um, and then, and then the, the likelihood that the people also attracted to that place are people who are also making a serious investment in themselves and they're going to be serious about their experience and you're going to be able to do that experience together. There's, there's a lot of reasons to think that, that college, while still... Um, while more expensive than it used to be as a share of American income, which is, is the real scandal, it's still every bit worthwhile. And, and there isn't, and the other thing is, even if there is some risk, you know, and there are, there are professions and degrees where you are taking some risk that the return will not be a net payoff over time. You know, uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of legends about that, but there are there are some degrees that that the income remuneration is less than others. The life satisfaction is usually higher, so there's compensation. But um, even if there is some risk, what's your alternative? Because there's an almost dead certainty that not going and getting a college degree that you value in an experience that that uh, that launches you forward in terms of networking and 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 what you actually learn is a huge risk, and your likelihood of being downwardly mobile without a college degree that is in some way serious and connected to you to the rest of your experience is very, very high. And also adding to, you know, the, the you rattle off a list of other high price commodities like cars and houses and stuff like that. And, you know, you can, I wonder if it also adds to the stress that you can really only ever do an undergraduate education the right way once yes whereas you can buy multiple cars you didn't like this one so you get another one stuff like that but that's the thing there there is there's to me a whole lot of reason to be nervous and thoughtful and spend a lot of time and be very carefully invested in making the right choice about where you go to college but the question about how much it costs and how much risk you should take and how much you should be willing to borrow to do it is actually a less important question that go to the college that you've figured out is a really good match for you and then figure out how in whatever form it has to take, including some borrowing, how you can pay for that college experience. But the, the, all the effort and energy and worry and fret should be into lining up with a college that you like, where you feel confident and comfortable that you're going to have a really great experience. Um, the problem is it's sort of started to flip a little bit these days where the first thing people think about as they approach a college is how much does it cost? And only secondarily does do people think about, all right, given these colleges and how much they cost, which one do I want to go to? And that's the same that's the same problem you'd have with going out and seeking your first good job or even seeking your job as a mid-career person. If your first and only priority is what job is out there that pays me really well you've got a very high chance of just drawing a line over jobs that pay a certain amount and not thinking enough about how much you're going to learn, how much life satisfaction there is, how much work-life balance you can have, whether it's even in the neighborhood, whether it's a stepping stone to other things that you like. It's just it's just plain a mistake. If the first question you ask for yourself is, how much money do I make or how much money do I spend, then you're more likely to make a mistake in the rest of your choices. But that's a much easier question to ask, don't you think? I mean, it's a sh- there's a there's a shorter path to finding an answer to that. Yes, which is why you shouldn't do it. In other words, if this is a really important consequential, which decision is another way that of saying that maybe once, this is the this is this is why this is the first question that everybody asks. Like, what am I going to get for my money? Is because that's that's what might be right at the tip of their brain on this. Well, I, you know, the, actually, I would say the range of things where that's really the best first question is maybe smaller than we think. Um, Not meaning, even best, but just first. Meaning, like, you can go out and get more calories per dollar by going and eating every day at McDonald's than you can by eating healthy, fresh food. It's going to cost you more and you're going to get fewer calories for it. 
but that doesn't mean it's a better way mm-hmm. to be healthy or to enjoy your your living experience. You 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 have to be more thoughtful than that about every single purchase you get. So unfortunately, what am I getting for my money is not a simple question. There aren't that many things you can buy that are perfectly interchangeable. Right. And and we we treat them as if they are like every other thing is exactly the same. You know, we'll walk up to a row of toothpaste, and there are people who will choose the generic brand because it's the generic brand and it's cheapest. And sometimes that's right, and sometimes that's a good formula for not taking care of your cavities as well. So I think the consumer, the average consumer, should be really thoughtful. And if the consumer approach to college is that all college degrees are essentially alike, and therefore the one that comes cheapest is the best one coming to you. It seems to me like you're you're sort of shortchanging. There's a whole set of roughly four years of experiences or more, and then there's a whole set of associations and lifestyle connections beyond that that you are saying is all interchangeable, and it's just plain not. There there is there is too much research evidence that going to a college where, for instance, the vast majority of people do not graduate or a very significant fraction of people do not graduate increases your chances of not graduating, even if everything you did in high school was exactly right. So you can be a stellar, brilliant student. And if you go to a college where the people around you are less committed or secure about completing the degree there, that's going to drag down your prospects of completing your, your degree there too. That's a that's a straight up analysis that never changes. And you can certainly walk into any situation like that saying, I'm going to beat the odds. I'm going to go to community college because it's less expensive. And then I'm going to go to the state four-year school that's very good. And even though it's got a not as good a graduation rate as the private college down the block, I'm going to beat those odds and I'm going to do well. And more power to you. That determination is great. Over time, the average person, even with that much determination, is not going to find that to be true. They're going to be less likely to be successful if they put themselves into less successful situations. How does this, How does a college or university set its price? Uh, uh, that's... There's not, I would say that's not even art or science. Uh, Colleges set their price largely at where they think the market is for the places they consider peers. So public colleges, public state colleges worry a lot about whether they're charging more than the state next door. Um, Private colleges worry whether they're charging as much or as little as another private college that they've deemed to be similar in character that they that they see themselves competing with or that they've actually analyzed that they're competing with. So there's and if people want to say there's price fixing, I would say, yeah, in a sense there is, because the the number one thing that colleges pay attention to is how does our price match with everybody else? But that's the list price. That's not what actually the net price is at all. So the average of what people spend on college is significantly less than the list price. And I I think that's where you get into a little more uh, truth um, because if a college is aiming to meet financial need, then they are reducing the the net price to match what families can pay. If colleges, and there's a lot of colleges in the United States that give a lot of merit aid, then they're discounting based on the, the, the qualifications, the desirability of the students they have coming in the front door for all kinds of reasons. And and scholarships even for athletes and all that kind of stuff all fits into that mix. People, colleges discount their price for the sake of getting the students that they want the most, including this prospect of meeting need for those who need it. So the actual net price that people are paying has not gone up at the same rapid clip as the list price. And so it's a little bit of a a misleading thing that goes on out there that says college tuitions have risen faster than anything else you can name under the sun. And that may be true, and it may be a bad market in that sense that that price keeps going up and up and up. But if you're not paying attention to what's going on in the net price underneath, then you really don't have a, a real understanding of what the situation is. So if a college is a non-for-profit as opposed to someplace like DeVry or um, University of Phoenix or Everest or places like this, if a, co- if a college is, is, techni- is designated as a not-for-profit educa- uh, institution, why not just set the price at what it really costs for a student to attend or how much of the price is actually that well there, the, there, the there, actual value of producing the there, education for the student there's a there's a bunch of things that go on behind the scenes which 
again, drive towards a reality of what the net price is that the average person is paying. But that that average is not the same for everybody. So two students sitting next to each other in class are very likely at an expensive place or even at a relatively inexpensive place in many cases. They're paying two different prices for the same instructional dollar coming their way. So that's that. there is, there is a, a, an absolute truth that colleges are a form of socialism. Um, not necessarily that the tuition you're paying is is being spent on the next door student who's getting a discount of some kind, but that the tuition you're paying might be representing the full value of what it costs that place to employ those faculty, build those labs, have those. You know, in other words, you may be paying exactly the instructional cost, whereas somebody else is paying a significantly small fraction of what those instructional costs, because there are other, there are other ways that colleges make money. The big research universities make money through the research dollars that are invested in them. This is maybe not easily understood, but when there's a when there's a hundred million dollars in research going on at a university campus, guarantee you that forty million of that is actually going back to the campus to support the libraries and the technology and the, the staff structure and parking and and all those things that keep a place so there's going. There's a redistribution of there's a redistribution of the research dollars. There's a redistribution of the tuition dollars. So where by and large, some people paying full tuition without any kind of discount are paying something close, maybe not actually all of, but they're paying something close to the instructional costs, the actual costs. A lot of students are paying significantly less the instructional costs. And then, of course, the other great source of income and and and, and spendable money at a college campus or a, a private university, a large portion of spending is coming from an endowment. So you've got an endowment fund that's invested and uh, like a $2 billion endowment like Rochester's. So is, what is that? So d- dive into what an endowment is. Well, this is this is an interesting question because even though uh, a place is officially a not-for-profit, in order to sustain themselves as a not-for-profit, one of the things they want to have is this cushion, this this ability to survive shockwaves in the economy and a $2 billion endowment in our case, although it's it's a lot less... A lot less than it sounds because most of it is earmarked for very specific things. So you have an endowment for a faculty chair of whatever. It might be a $1.5 million endowment, maybe a little bit more. So faculty chair means that I can hire a a professor into this position because there's money there to support that particular thing. Some donor somewhere along the way said, I always wanted to be there. I always want somebody teaching at X college who's an expert in medieval history. So they endow a chair in their name in medieval history. To guarantee that that will And the, the most of or a lot of, or in many cases, all of that faculty member's salary who's hired into that role is being paid as a share of that endowment or what that endowment earns over time. So there's a whole lot of what's called restricted endowments. So $2 billion, it's not like that's spending Just off liquid cash. Yeah. At, at 5% per year, you'd say, okay, that's a hundred million dollars to spend. That's a lot of cash. You can do a lot of things with it, but a very small fraction of that is stuff you can just spend on anything you want. A lot of it is specifically restricted to specific kinds of expenses you have to make. So somebody who's sitting in an endowed chair as a tenured faculty member, they're there for life and life can mean 30, 40, even 50 years of in perpetuity. So it doesn't, in a sense, it doesn't matter if, if there's an endowed chair in German mystic philosophers at Harvard, then there's going to be a professor of German mystic philosophers at Harvard, or that money's just going to sit there and not do anything at all. It's not like mm-hmm. that money could be picked up and spent on right, so some poor kid down the block in Cambridge it. instead. Right. And so unrestricted endowment is, it's some share. It can range from a few percentage points to 20, 25 percentage points, but that's where you've got this choice that you can make with with some income in addition to the research dollars. Research dollars are actually more fungible, and so that's why there's a drive towards having research dollars. And then tuition is the most spendable of all. You can decide exactly what you want to do with tuition at any given moment. So there's, for most of the colleges in the country, even though they might have that most of the colleges in the country do not have a big enough endowment to make that much of a difference. And most of the colleges in the country don't have research dollars that make that much of a difference either. Frankly, increasingly, most of the state colleges also aren't getting a state subsidy that is worth a damn in terms of ability to spend. So tuition is it. 
Tuition is the way that expenses are being met. So you're going to have more opportunities as a student at a place that's not only, you know, charging an arm and a leg in tuition, but also has a huge cash or has a huge endowment to, to, to work from and also research dollars that are coming I, in. Is I, I, would, to- I would say going, going to a place with a big endowment, that's a factor that you can take into account when you're deciding what college to go to in this sense. It's just the same way that when you buy a house, whether you're planning to keep it for five years or 10 years or 20 years, if you can buy a house that's in a good neighborhood, in a good block with good schools, your chances of selling that house are better. So it's the same thing with endowment. If you buy a degree, spend your time and earn a degree at a place with a big endowment, you can feel very secure that that college is still going to be there still with its reputation intact, still making the value of your degree, your reputation high forever, right. which is different than going to a place that does not have a lot of endowment that may be providing a really fine education right now, but may not be able to weather the the situations. So I think you answered a question for me there that I was going to ask, which is to say, is this why... <laughs> You know, it seems that schools with the biggest endowments and therefore the most, you know, the, the, the greatest sort of guarantee on future success and everything else for themselves and for their all affiliated also charge the most in tuition room and board because they're charging a premium based on, hey, look at the size of our endowment. This is a guarantee that you're going to get here. And it's where this whole question of not-for-profit gets fuzzy because uh, nonprofits, any nonprofit likes the idea of having a healthy reserve of cash balances and in some cases a pretty healthy endowment. But when you're paying tuition and you're looking at a place that already has a $10 billion endowment, you're saying, well, that's crazy. They could just make this place free. But you couldn't. If you if you if you made it free, you would be spending all that endowment on on this stuff forever. You would no longer have the security or the ability to invest or to grow. So it's it's Yes, your, your your perception that places with a big endowment nevertheless charge a very high price is exactly right, but it's the, it's the same same drive. Whether or not that's really not for profit is a big question. You know, it's a different kind of model, really. And that's, I mean, in a lot of those places with big endowments, it is free for a lot of people, right? Yeah, it, yeah. the The places with the biggest endowments about ten years ago started a a, a movement towards providing better financial aid, a better deal for upper middle income students, much less middle income and low income students. They did away with student loans as an expectation. They changed. So the I think I've seen this go from like, it's like a, you know, household income combined or whatever of like 60,000 and it's free at places like Harvard. And then I think Stanford raised that up to $125,000 or something. No, like it's, that. it's well, yeah. Free kicks in free goes up I think in Harvard's case and Princeton's case maybe to seventy five or eighty thousand dollars in family okay. income per year. Um but significantly reduced expectation of paying goes up as high now as two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. I think that's at Yale, where the if if you only make that much, you're judged to be a middle income family and you, the share of what you have to pay is capped at ten percent of your total income. So Yale's normal tuition price is forty three, forty four thousand but if you're making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or less, it's possible you're only paying twenty five thousand. It's it's a little bit rough on everybody else because Yale is clearly applying a formula to how they determine need that most colleges can't match. It's great for those families, but I mean to to draw a contrast, a family making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year sending a child to Rochester might get a little bit of help. They might they might earn a little bit of a uh, well, merit scholarship is possible, but they might even nerd, depending on how big the family was, all kinds of circumstances, they might get a little bit of need-based aid. Yale, they're getting a, a, an $18,000 subsidy against their, their, their tuition price, but Rochester can't afford to do that. That family is really, potentially, it, it, that family is really capable of paying the full thing. So that would be one instance in which we might say this is, this is a primary reason why we want to beat the bushes and try to raise as much funds as we can to grow our endowment to be able to provide more opportunities like this? Well, so endowment helps you every way, right? It makes you, you're more secure in the marketplace. You get a better deal on your loans. The big reason for an endowment at a place like Rochester with a gigantic medical center is really sort of the driver of this kind of thing is we have to go out and secure from the banks an operating loan each year of $180, $185 million. The bigger our endowment, 
the the more likely we get favorable terms on that loan so we can operate in the way that we need to operate every year. Every business does this. They have a big operating loan to keep them going and then they, they're constantly in payback mode. So you want to have a healthy endowment because that's one of the things that's on the financial balance sheet balance mm-hmm. sheet for Moody's or Standard & Poor's to look at and say this is a place worth lending to. Let me just, when I, you, know, you mentioned scholarships and financial aid already and I think this happens, I see this a lot particularly in low-income households, families, kids that I talk to, um, they often ask about scholarships before they ask about financial aid. There's this sense that money is out there to be won in order to afford going to college. And um, I'm always kind of amazed that they've just missed the whole financial aid piece and jumped straight to scholarships. And so there's a lot to that issue, but I want to just back up and ask you to talk in general about um, financial aid. And like, let me just ask you, what is financial aid and how does it work? Well, so financial aid, financial aid really is both scholarships and other kinds of programs, right. grants and and loans and work study. There's a very strict line in the minds of most people on most college campuses. And the more, the wealthier the campus, the more true this is between money that you give students because they need it because that family simply cannot afford to pay more or to pay the full price of what you cost versus money that you give for any other reason. So the for, the latter is labeled scholarships. And yes, everybody wants scholarships because that's, that's a reward for work you've done. That's a recognition of the abilities that you have. It's a it's free money. It's something you can, it's, well, it's free money. You can go out and brag about it and say, my daughter got a full scholarship or a big scholarship. So that's terrific. So there is always this constant pressure to label the money that's being given as scholarships because people want scholarships. Need-based financial aid is frankly un-American. Nobody wants it. It's just the same way that 90% of Americans call themselves middle class, even when their income range for middle class ranges from something abysmally low in American terms right now, like $30,000 a year, all the way up to $500,000 a year. Everybody in that range calls themselves middle class. Financial aid is like welfare? Yeah. Financial aid sounds like welfare. It sounds like you're taking something you don't deserve and you didn't earn the experience you're about to have because it's being given to you because you're poor. It's not American to want to Hmm. take financial aid. But the reality is half or more of American families need that help. They need that help for a state institution, even if it's state subsidized in part, they need that help because it's more expensive than they can afford. Um, They certainly need it at almost every private college. And it's, it's rough because you, you want, you want families to feel very proud about the fact that they got admitted to a place and having been admitted to a place that meets your financial need, it's a perfectly natural thing to then get the aid that you need to be able to go there. There shouldn't be any shame in that at all, but it's not an American thing to do. Interesting. Yeah. It's, so it, it's it's hard because you, you, you want to get the message out about how to apply for need-based financial aid, how to provide the tax returns and, the, and the, the, use the profile service in our case and the FAFSA, and you want to make it simple and easy and, and something that people understand and that they're happy to do. But nonetheless, there is something inherently un-American at the core that makes people not necessarily resistant to it, but they would far rather hear you talk about why they deserve that money based on their academic performance and the the great qualities of who they are than that they need it because they just didn't fulfill the American dream well enough. So relative to the idea of need versus deserve, um, on the one hand, as far as deserving goes and the notion of merit scholarships, uh, one of the things that I've found, I know that we've found all, all of us that, that work in this business, especially as an organization that does give merit-based scholarships, is that what schools do with that um, and their policies towards either granting merit scholarships at all varies dramatically from from place to place. And so, I mean, why might that be the case? Why might schools use or award merit scholarships differently if they if they even give them at all. Well, there's certainly some of this that's just random screw ups. <laughs> I mean, people people aren't perfect in their planning at colleges any more than they are anywhere else. So it should be the case that the money you're spending or the money you're repurposing or investing that you give to students is designed to meet your strategic goals and to match what you want. So we'll say, first of all, that you look at this from an enrollment management standpoint as an investment in students. Yeah. 
So I, it's my aim to make sure that the money we're going to spend that is not coming back to us in the form of tuition that we're going to actually sort of give out as a credit basically against the tuition prices is going disproportionately to those students who we want to give it to. Our first priority clearly forever has been need-based financial aid so that the 50% of the students coming to Rochester who could not go without the help can be guaranteed and assured that the help is coming for not just their first year but beyond so they can get there and graduate. That's that's our number one driving priority. It's the number one driving priority of a very large number of the colleges that do this. But there's also a very significant fraction of colleges that have decided to spend that money or their highest priority on spending that money is to give it to students who make well, you you I mean, you don't have to be cynical. You can say give it to students that they believe are most deserving and most likely to get the benefit of being in that place by virtue of their own preparation, their own high scores, especially, and their other good qualities. Uh, and this has been going on for generations. It's not like it's new. It has escalated in the last 20 years to a point where it, it, it has a chance of collapsing of its own weight. It is not stuff that politicians love to be able to say, except if they're state politicians and they're retaining students in state who are brain, who have big brains. But uh, but it has become – what's become unsustainable is you can't really do both. You can't – unless you've got all the money in the world and there's only a handful of places that really have that, you can't both meet need and invest in people based on the other qualities that they're going to bring your way. You can only choose to spend else. your money one way or the other. Right. Well, there's, there's, only so, there's only so much money to go around. So some places – some places with which Rochester overlaps and competes have decided basically to invest every dollar they have in what is needed to raise their campus profile. Uh, and I mean that in both the abstract and the specific sense. The campus so this profile is, is... this is like, so let's, one of one of these, another way to say that is, is let's improve our position in the rankings. Yeah, sure. A lot of what is driving the choices about where do you spend the money are the things that you think will influence voters in the U.S. News and Report rankings or will actually move the numbers in your U.S. News and World Report analysis. Uh, that can be healthy to the extent that U.S. News and World Report is measuring things that are really valuable in a campus environment like you know, residential living, retention, graduation rates. Uh, to some extent, you know, this gets gamed a lot, but faculty resources, smaller classes are prioritized, larger classes taken out. Um, some of it is not very helpful because you do play some pretty serious games and you actually end up compromising educational quality for the sake of increasing your status in the for rankings. Example. Well, my favorite example that has been driving everybody nuts is you've got an incentive to, well, I don't want to beat around the bush. You're, you're lying. Um, there's a lot of places that are artificially inflating the perception of how selective they are by pretending that uh, an application is the same if it's whether it's an application that requires two essays and two letters of recommendation and a whole lot of preparation and effort, or if it's just an application that was pre-printed for you in an email and all you have to do is return the email and bam, you're considered an applicant. And colleges have been doing this now for, I don't know, 15 years where they are raising the hype, which doesn't, as far as I can tell, it it helps their profile. It helps them be perceived as being selective, but it doesn't really do anything else for anybody. It makes parents and students anxious. It makes counselors unsure about what is true. It makes people cynical because the extent that they apply to places thinking they're hard to get into and always get into them anyway. So it's like in, it sounds like inflation to me. It's like the it's, market well, it's is it's like it, the market is flooded with cash that doesn't and, mean anything. And there's and the thing is there's no standard definition of what an applicant is. So there's no break or check on this. If if Fordham comes out and says, we got 50,000 applications that aren't really real, then Hofstra has to do the same thing, and then Drexel, and then George Washington, and then Syracuse, and then Northeastern, and, so and they all have to a, play this game. There's a circle of trust a little bit here? Or, or no, there's a circle of complete mistrust. mistrust right? Yeah. It's, 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 it's <laughs> stab somebody in the back who's got a slight overlap with you as fast as you can. But is it and everybody's, it's, it's ugly, and it doesn't do anything for but kids. But it sounds like everybody's got something on somebody else. Almost that like if you, nobody can really do that. The, you know, the, the evidence seems clear that this works for a while. It's kind of like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. But if you don't actually make it, if you don't get into an orbit where you are actually genuinely 
more selective, more thoughtful, and doing the right thing by students and everybody else, then you are actually ruining your brand. Switching over to neat base, we talked about scholarships. Um, uh, I've heard some criticism about using a phrase that we use daily on the road when we're talking to kids and in mailings and everything else. And that is when we talk about, quote, meeting full demonstrated need. Um, the criticism is that that's not, that's sort of disingenuous, um, that what a family really needs is, is and, and the demonstration of it is not, uh, is not entirely fair and that we've got, um, we're totally in control of that sort of power dynamic there. And it's not fair for us to to tell people that they can expect to get exactly what they need from financial aid. I've been looking at this for probably basically going on 35 years and none of those things are true. It is, it is complicated and every family's situation is at least a little bit different, but not that different. The vast majority of families have one or two wage earners, the wages they earn are relatively steady or they have at the very least fairly predictable patterns of bonuses you know there's some businesses in real estate where the pattern is much more fluid but the vast majority of americans live on a wage they have a certain amount they put towards retirement they have a certain amount of costs that you have to allow for a family of a certain size and and living in a certain jurisdiction their taxes are relatively predictable so it is very possible to measure all of these inputs and outputs and really get a firm number or a pretty reasonable number, a pretty reasonable range on that family's ability to put some share of the funds they have left over towards college education. It is need-based financial aid measurements are pretty realistic and pretty accurate and pretty detailed in ways that are appropriate without being too outrageously intrusive. So to me, that whole process of assessing somebody's financial need, their demonstrated financial need in the way that we talk about it, especially for those of us using the college scholarship service profile form is pretty CSS darn accurate. Profile. College scholarship service profile. It's an Which online the other state. form in addition to the FAFSA. Yeah, most, well, a very large fraction of the most selective private universities and colleges use this. They've been using it for a really long time. It's a, it's an instrument that they share that the, the values and the calculations are very similar to me. I would be happy if they were completely transparent, meaning every single family that goes into this process could see exactly what calculations are going to happen behind the scenes. That's what the net price calculator was about was to make that possible. So to me, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, I'm not going to go out and say it's hundred percent fair, but if it's unfair, it's equally unfair to everybody. Meaning they, they have demanded the same kinds of sacrifices from every kind of family, regardless of where they come from in terms of what share of their income and their wealth should be devoted or available for a college education. In other words, that family's ability to choose to spend money on a college education has been accurately measured. And then it's not completely in the control of the colleges in the sense that every family has an ability and an opportunity and a right to pursue this question in greater depth and to make sure that their own circumstances are being taken into account. And so you're saying, so to put put it simply, if you get a financial aid package and something looks totally wrong, to continue to chase it down, that don't close the door well, this, on it. This is the hardest thing is that the families who have a pretty good income and pretty good wealth are more likely to know that they should ask the question and make sure that they're being assessed fairly. The families that don't have any mm-hmm. means are the ones that are least likely to think that they can ever even ask a question about it. So in that instance, is it is it it's safer to assume that, I mean, we're comfortable that we're doing the right thing when we're packaging these students, right? Yeah. Across income levels. I am, a, I am, I am as sure of, I am so as then sure what's left of the to be fairness of down. the financial aid operation that I have as I'm sure of anything else on earth. So then what's left to be chased down then? If you, you feel like you're being totally fair to families as you package them, what needs to, what what can possibly happen after the fact then? I mean, why you know that that if they if they decide to appeal their financial aid package, if a family appeals their financial aid package, we're going to take another look. We're going to make sure there weren't any mistakes in the calculation. And I'm not you know mistakes do happen. That's worth that's always worth looking at. Nobody's perfect, and so you evaluate whether the numbers that got put in were right. Sometimes the family said something wrong. They, you know, they misrepresented or they overcalculated. So they're all think there's reason for that. You'll look at any special circumstances that the family says weren't encompassed in the forms, and you will look at that, and it might mean something. 
and then yes, there are choices, but the 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 range of choices for a financial aid office are typically pretty narrow. They don't leave. I mean, the the financial aid budget is a pretty carefully monitored thing. You don't leave a lot to chance about what a family might claim to. But there are there are things where you make choices. A good example is here's a family in a community where they already have invested in a nice home in a good school district. They've got a good public school. A family like that could still choose to pay for a private school tuition. We would, our default would be that that's a choice. You've decided to send your child to private school, even though there was a good option. But you could also be in a circumstance where the only really good viable school, because you had a special needs child or because the public schools had had suffered challenges or your child was bullied in the public school, and you could come to us and say, look, we have to pay that tuition. We have to send mm-hmm. that child to private mm-hmm. school. There really right. isn't another choice. That's the case where we say, okay, we're going to allow that as an expense that you have to have, and that reduces what you contribute to the college education. How far do you take that notion of choice? Like, do you say you live in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, but you could live in Rochester? No, 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 no. There's never there's never a judgment made about where you've chosen to live. Uh, there... There would be some limit to your ability to account for the fact that some places are more expensive to live in others. In other words, there is a cost of living adjustment for the most expensive places in the United States. So mm-hmm. LA and New York and San Francisco are known to higher tax and some higher costs. On the other hand, most of those higher costs are associated with housing. And for those who are homeowners, yes, you are paying more, but you're also building more wealth and equity in that home as you go. So at least some fraction of what you're spending to live in San Francisco or LA or New York is coming back to you in some way, shape, or form as a form of family financial strength. So there's an adjustment, but it's not a pure adjustment. You can't say, look, my 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 uh, home in New York City cost me $3 million, and if I lived out in Armonk, it would only cost $750,000, and you have to take all of that into account in mm-hmm. deciding whether or not I get financing for financial aid. I'll say, no, right. I'm not making you move, but you are gaining something as well as losing something by the choices that you've made. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have heard about um, this, the, the, the phrase that I've heard is barbell effect, that you've got um, financial need or the capability for students to be able to afford the cost of attendance at expensive colleges, maybe even not necessarily, but just college in general, really accruing to people at the very low end of the of the income spectrum and at the very high income yeah. end of the spectrum. And that families in the middle are really kind of getting cut out of the support system there. Is here's, that- here's more or less what's happened. It's a real it's a very real truth that private colleges administering just purely need-based financial aid. This is one of the reasons that Harvard and Yale and Princeton have done what they've done because of this barbell effect. By changing the definition of what a middle-income family is, they've tried to mitigate against a genuine problem that's crept up in the last... There's there's data to show this, that showed us, showed us this. I don't think that most of the colleges have figured out what to do about it because it's it's a complicated problem. But basically, over the last 15, 20, even 25 years, more and more the case is, yes, there's families that can afford to pay. There's no question about it. They just pay. There's families that can't afford to pay, and there's no question about it. They're going to get aid. And then there's families in the middle where the expectation that they can pay something is realistic. What has happened, according to the data, is the share of a fam- middle-income family's income that we're expecting to be spent on college has grown. That's because it's 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 sort of this uh, catch-22 situation. The share of college, the college costs as a total share of family income at that range has grown. Meanwhile, family income has not grown nearly as much on average. So we're now asking more of families that legitimately can't afford to pay something, but the share of what we're asking to spend has grown. So you're a middle income family in 1985, let's say, let's go back 30 years, making $40,000 a year, spending $12,000 a year on tuition had then the you know they had twenty eight thousand dollars left over to to do what they needed pay their taxes. Meanwhile, thirty years later, flash forward, that same family at the middle income range is probably making one hundred and sixty thousand, uh, and the college costs have gone up three times as much. Their other kinds of costs have not gone up as much, so they're now paying the full price, 
and it's a larger share of their total income than it was. It's gone up from being mm-hmm. you know, 40% of their income to 60% of their income that's expected to be devoted to college. That's, that's a serious truth right. that the share of family income at the middle income ranges. So you are getting middle income families, I think, appropriately saying, well, the relative value of the college situation relative to our income has, has degenerated. And so we're going to search for bigger bargains. We're going to take merit scholarships at lower ranked institutions, or we're going to go a, a less expensive route, public schools, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's a weird situation because on the one hand, that's true. It's, it's, it's relatively not as good a share of your total family budget as it used to be. It's a bigger cut out of a pie that hasn't grown as much. That doesn't mean it's unfair. That doesn't mean that the formula has changed, that you know, the ability of a middle-income family to pay is, is, is not as good as it always was. But you were getting, basically, that middle-income family was getting still a really pretty good deal on mm-hmm. education in 1985. And I would even go so far as to say there's a rationale for the fact that you're paying more. Colleges have gotten better. Colleges, by nature of what they are, improve all the time. You can look at it just in the, in the, the faculty alone. The, uh, there are more prospective people coming out with strong PhDs and good records of research and and even uh, teaching there's there's more talent coming into the industry from all over the world than there used to be and so almost every college you can go to now you can find really good faculty and frankly better faculty than you did 30 years ago every and of course everything else about the experience has grown and improved the the facilities the the um, which is part of the which is part of the argument that a lot of people make like you know my paying for a world class you know gym for my kid to go to college or, or am I paying for the faculty? Like, I don't want to pay for the gym. Yeah, I pay here's for the, the faculty. problem. You're, you're paying for a world-class gym because 50% of the students at that school have the means to demand a world-class gym. And mm-hmm. so the school, in order to attract the tuition dollars from those people who can afford to go anywhere, has to offer a facility that makes that attractive for them. Yes, you in your middle income range might say, you know what, I would be, I would be happier with a no-frills circumstance. But that's not what colleges can't build two different gyms. They can't build the elite gym for the full paying people and then the gym that allows us to reduce your cost because it's a, you know. So you have to basically appeal to the highest common And and that's because, you know, we're a four-year residential experience. We're not a flight. You know, you can jam onto a a straight-up board seat on one of these smiley airlines for a four-hour flight that you endure (laughs) To save sixty bucks, most of which you're going to end up spending back on luggage fees or whatever. And the but you're going to have this perception that you're saving you're money. To your but you're not going to do that for four years. Yeah. You're going to want to have the experience that everybody else is having to right. some extent. So, you talked about the cost of college going up a lot. What does it cost? What's the total cost of attendance? Twenty sixteen University of Rochester. So tuition this year will be around forty eight thousand dollars, forty nine. Yeah, I think forty six, something like that. And then with fees, it's going to be a little bit over $50,000 for the instructional part of your activity. And mm-hmm. then room and board, uh, food tax and on another, yeah, food and housing, tax on another 15000 uh, Transportation and books are, are rolled up in there too. So it's close to a $65,000 price tag per year, again, if you paid full price. Mm-hmm. For Rochester, right. only about 15% of our students are paying full price. Right. 50% are getting need-based financial aid. They're getting help from us and from the government and everybody else to, to be able to subsidize mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And 35% were giving at least some discount through merit scholarships. Right. So, the, and that's an increase over last year of how much percent? Uh, actually, the, the, the price has not been going up as dramatically over the last five years than it did before. Ever since the, the Lehman Brothers crash and all mm-hmm. of that, the colleges have been pretty conscious of not being able to just raise their prices for a while there there were steady close to five percent increases well ahead of inflation but now colleges still trail a little bit ahead of inflation but on the order of one or two percent so why isn't it just pegged to inflation wouldn't that be one way to kind of rein the cost in well and to make it more equal across everybody calculated on a on a set of goods and services that are typical for the average u.s household they do not include college tuition as an element in in calculating a consumer price and price index so why not because it's not it probably should i mean if you want to have a really sophisticated cpi you would probably bundle the price of college tuition at some reasonable proportion into that but but they don't 
services in general, healthcare and, and, and college education are the two, the two that are most no, notorious. They are still catching up with the ability to bring technology into it and to build efficiencies. There is still an awful lot of healthcare service and education that is really a one-to-one experience. They, the price of that one-to-one experience has not dropped. There's no efficiencies to be gained from having an internet if what you're really after is the chance to sit down and talk with a professor about what he or she knows. All right. So then, so let me, <laughs> I don't want to say dumb it down, but that's the best I got right now. Yeah. If you, so the cost of, you know, providing uh, a year of education to an undergraduate from one year to the next increases by the amount it does because inflation can't count for all, can't account for all of, of the real cost increases right. that you've got other things involved uh, in, in, in that um, calculation that uh, generate that that real price that the price is real you're saying it's right. not a it's not a you know just a just the a change, hey guys look how high the, we can get the change in price is real right so remember how i, I said right, that right, the right, net right. price is much closer to reality than the list correct price. correct correct but the change be in price enough. from one year to the next is also pretty real yeah in other words the the actual costs have gone up in a way that matches what the net price has, has right. gone up to right be. right right okay is it eventually gonna cost a hundred thousand dollars a year to go to college or is it going to stop somewhere you know the biggest issue we have is that the share of americans who can afford to pay the list price has been declining forever and and is there's there's no match now the average household income much less individual income in the united states is now less than the price of a private school tuition and and the other costs that are there so there's already a big problem in the system that an increasing share of the students going to a college are not paying the list price. So you, you, you have an industry that looks a lot like the car industry during, you know, sometimes when everybody's providing rebates. So you've got this list price that isn't real. And then you've got the actual price that people are paying and people get very cynical and bargainy about, you know, going back and forth, trying to figure out what they really want to pay. And everybody, you know, everybody assumes used car salesmen are, are trying to maximize their profit. And if, if people assume that colleges are doing that too, then it, it becomes a, a, a terrible situation. So there, there's a, a people, risk. I think a lot of people do feel that way. Right? Well, yeah. I, but the, it's just, the, this the is just trumped that up. Is great it's already. inflated. It's not real. I, I honestly don't think that very many colleges do that. I don't think that they would think that they were very good at it in the first place. Um, and at least the element that you have with a car salesman of the back and forth is not a very common feature in most colleges. Mm-hmm. Some, mm-hmm. but not a lot. Um, they don't haggle over the price. They don't. They don't. They don't haggle. They, they try they, though. They may have done well. The families do quite a bit. The 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 colleges, what the colleges are doing, and it's it's that's not morally better, but it's different. They are figuring out what they think a family is likely to want to spend, mm-hmm. and they are trying to offer that price to them. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same thing as saying that they're ready to go back and forth and be bargained up and down quite a bit. There isn't a whole lot of that, some of that, but not a whole lot of that. Right. But that's it's 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 an unpleasant market to be part of. You would rather have uh, families understand what the price is, be ready to pay that price, or if they can't, to be ready to have a, an appropriate subsidy for the, what they actually need. Um, but that's a shrinking fraction of the total student okay. population. People are out there looking for bargains and, and trying to negotiate for bargains. And I, in the end, though, I, I think you still get what you pay for. Uh, you might get lucky and get a bigger subsidy at a place that you really like. But if you're, getting, if you're taking the biggest subsidy you can get at the place that you don't like as much and you've marginally put a greater risk that you and your child are not going to like being there and you're not going to be successful there, then you're taking a much greater risk overall. Your mm-hmm. first priority has to be going to a place where you really want to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not necessarily the place that you most dream about. I'm not saying it's always worthwhile to spend $65,000 at Princeton and never worth it to spend $25,000 at Penn State. That's not true. I mean, people are matched up with different places for different reasons. But if you've got the place that you're very confident you match up well with and you're not going there because you think you're saving five or $10,000 a year, you're being, I think, penny wise and pound foolish. You will never, in the end, miss that extra five or $10,000 a year. Over the course of the lifetime and the earnings, you won't. You might 
really feel and you might really resent that you're missing out on the experience that you anticipated from the place that cost a little bit more. Interesting. Okay, I'm just going to stop this right here, let you all go to the bathroom, splash a little cold water in your face uh, before you return for part two. Equally as good, yet different. We stay obviously on the issue of the cost of college. We transition a little bit in the end towards a higher level conversation uh, about some of this stuff, so I hope you'll come back. Uh, Don't stop here, right? If you do, just, you know, make it like a pause, like a long pause, and then just dig into the second part. All right, do it. I'll wait right here. I won't go anywhere. I'll stay right here. I'm still here.